Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. All right, everybody, good morning. It is Monday, July 25th, and uh, it's time for us to jump in to Bible study. Um, Just wanted to say a word as we get started this morning that uh, I know uh, you've prayed for us over the course of last week as we were in Dubai for the Global Orphan Care Conference, and I'm sure we'll spend some more time um, sharing about the details of that conference, but it was was absolutely uh, amazing. Um, one of the, one of the coolest things that, that I think I have personally ever been involved in and, and was, um, we were all just incredibly blessed to be with our partners, to share in the word, to, to be encouraged, to continue in the gospel and, and also to, um, to have an opportunity to, you know, plan and talk a little bit about, um, about the future. And so. We look forward to sharing more in coming days, and I'm sure Mark and Michael uh, and others will um, will have uh, plenty to say about that and and talking about kind of where we go from here. Um, and we'll get to that um, just as soon as we've all had a little bit of a chance to get over jet lag. So, anyway, so this morning we're going to jump into uh, Genesis chapter 13 and 14, and I appreciate Pastor Chris uh, last week in. Uh, in going through chapters 11 and 12, we're going to be referring back there a, a little bit. Um, but, um, but in chapter, chapter 13, we, we pick up with um, Abram and Sarah and, uh, and the fact that they are, they, they are now leaving Egypt. They've now come up out of Egypt and they've come back to, um, they've come back to the, to the promised land. They've come back to, um, to the place where, where they actually started. So let's let's begin, and we'll um, we'll read the first several verses. It says, "So Abram went up from Egypt, and he went he he and his wife and all that he had, Lot with him, um, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he had journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai." to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great. They could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the the Perizzites uh, were dwelling in the land. And so, you know, remember from what we've seen before um, that God made a covenant with Abraham, made an, made a, an agreement with him, told him that he was going to give him um, this land with the land that's come to know, come to be known as the promised land that he was going to, um, he was going to provide for, uh, for Abram, that he was going to make of him a, a great nation and, and a mighty nation, even though uh, he and Sarah had no children. Um, but when famine struck in the land, um, what was what was Abram's response? Well, his response was not to trust God and to trust God in the midst of what God had called him to do. Um, his 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 decision was to flee to Egypt, and so um, don't miss the fact that we that we see here that that after all of this and and after everything that's happened that we've that we've studied with regard to Abram up to this point that in chapter 13, he ends up right back in the place where he started. Now, sure, he's accumulated um, some more animals and some more servants, and he's, he, he's a wealthier man than, than when he left. But, but the perspective I think that, that we need to take here is, is that God had promised to take care of him right where he was. And, and so Abram kind of took things into his own hands and he fled to Egypt to get away from the famine and, and to try to work things out on his own. And, and we see how that turned out, right? It turned out in, in him um, lying and being deceitful. It, it turned out in him um, trying to take the plan into his own hands. It took, um, it, it turned out in, in, in his wife um, taking the plan into her own hands and, 
and them really not believing God for the things that God had promised to do. And so they went on this journey and it was really a journey of, of disobedience as they did things that were not honoring to the Lord. Now, maybe their, their earthly circumstances had changed a little bit in the fact that they had a little more stuff. But the truth is that um, really this time in Egypt just um, represents a, a lot of wasted years and a lot of wasted opportunity as they try to take things into their own hands. And I think the, the thing for us to remember here is that when God has called us to something, um, he will be faithful to accomplish it. And, and I think sometimes we start looking for, um, you know, we start looking for that, that open door or sometimes an open window that we're ready to go jump out in order to, to kind of make the plan of God work out or to make things happen more quickly when, when truly it, it, we really need to be considerate of the fact that God may be just calling upon us to wait, um, that, that he may have promised something to us. He may have called us to something. He, he may have inclined our hearts towards something, but he hasn't given it to us yet. And, and so we being impatient, living in the kind of the microwave society that we live in today, where we expect everything to happen instantly and quickly and perfectly um, in just the right way and in just the way that we think it should. Well, that's kind of the same way that that Abram was was acting and responding at this point. And, and what did it get him? It got him a, a lot of hard experiences and it got him um, you know, separated and distant from the Lord. It got him into a place where he learned to be a good liar. It, it, it cultivated skill and a mindset in him that he was going to have to live down and it ultimately put him in a place um, where, where he was far from where God wanted him to be. But we see in the beginning of chapter 13 that he's repented. He's turned, he's turned back to God. He's also turned back to the place um, that, that God had, had promised him. So we see in this, in this first paragraph um, that he's now come to um, the land of promise, but there's a problem. Um, and the first problem is, is that the land is um, like, it's going to be difficult for him um, and for Lot to, to be able to reside in the same place because Lot has acquired a bunch of servants and animals and all these things in, in his time. Um, and, and so literally they're going to struggle to occupy the same place because their herds and, and their workers and people are going to be running over the top of each other. And there's, there's really not enough natural resource to, to provide for them. More complicated than that is that at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are also living in this land. And so they're going to be kind of up against them and competing with them for the natural resources that are there. And so then we continue down into verse eight and it says, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen for we're kinsmen is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the, the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left and Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram set, settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, okay, so let, let's understand again what's happening here. So this land that, that they're in front of, it belongs to Abram and, and, and it belongs to Abram because God's given it to him. He's, he's covenanted with him and, and, and told him that everything, all of this land um, was to be his, but how, but how did Abram, like, how did he act functionally? Well, he, he acted um, generously and he acted in a way that he was trusting the Lord. So finally, after all of these experiences that he's had in, in Egypt and, and as they have wandered far from home and as they've tried to get away from the famine and, and where he's tried to take things into his own hand in order to, to be able to protect his own interests, finally, he's in a place where he's saying, look, I believe that the Lord is going to take care of me wherever I go. And so he says um, to Lot, you choose where you want to go. 
But understand that the reason that Lot was able to make that choice was not because Lot was somehow sovereign or he was somehow in control. The reason he was able to make that choice is because Abram gave it to him because the land belonged to Abram. And, and so there's an incredible generosity and an incredible trust in the Lord. And I, I think, again, there's a principle there for us to sort of internalize that, that, that part of generosity, part of us giving out of, out of those things that we've been given to steward over is, is really rooted in our trust for the Lord. And so, you know, even as we're raising money for Lifeline and trying to raise the resources that are necessary for us to do ministry, one of the things that we depend on is that people who have been given things to steward over by God, that, that they hold those things loosely and that they're willing to give them, they're willing to be generous. They're, they're not, they're not hoarding those things to themselves, but they have a kingdom perspective to say, that really their resource and, and, and their, their ability to take care of themselves comes from God caring for them and God providing for them, not what they can pack up and store up in the bank or, or, or in their, you know, in their barns or in their homes or, or wherever. And so you see a very different perspective here where it, it says that, that Abram is in this, in this place of trust, but Lot, Lot on the other hand, goes by what he can see with his eyes. And, and so Abram kind of gives him this opportunity to say, wherever you want to go, and, and what does Lot do? He looks around for the choicest and the richest portion of land that, that he could find. He looks, he looks for the place where he could, um, where he literally could enrich himself the most, and that's the place um, th that he chases after. And so Lot's concern here is not that he wants to be in the place where the Lord wants him to be. He's not asking the question of what's God's plan for my life or, or where am I going to be most useful to God? The question he's asking is how, where am I going to be most useful to myself? Where am I going to be most able to, to enrich myself? I want to go to the best land in the best place. And it just so happens that the best land in the best place is also right up against the most wicked city on the earth. And so Lot, without, um, without any concern for his own spiritual well-being or the spiritual well-being of his family or those people that are he, he's responsible for, he moves toward um, evil. He moves toward this place where it's going to be difficult to live and it's going to be difficult to follow God, but he has no regard for that whatsoever. And I think that's a warning to us to remember that that many times God permissively lets us make choices to do things that are, that are many times not in our best interest and are not things that are, um, that, you know, that are always good for our, our walk with him. Now, as we're going to see, and, and as we're going to see that plays out in the story, that, that, that really the, the promise that, that Paul tells us that all things work together for good, um, for them that, that love Christ and are called according to his purpose, that that's already being worked out in the life of Abram, that, that God's even using the, the mistakes and the bad choices and the short-sighted things that he's done. He's even using his sinfulness in a way to be able to shape him and to grow him, and God's going to work, and he's going to accomplish his 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 purposes, no matter how bad the choices that Abram or Lot or anybody else make, but but understand here that that Abram really um, ha, has made the good choice. Lot has made really a, a pretty terrible choice at this point, and and it's going to bear consequences um, over the next few years and through the next several chapters that that we're going to read. And so um, as we continue on, it says. So the, so the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now, now again, so Lot leaves and God, part of, part of Lot leaving is God wants to have a private conversation with Abram. He doesn't say this in the presence of Lot, what he's about to say. He doesn't, he doesn't do this or enact this with, with Lot in view. What he does is he allows Lot to be able to, to leave and to, to pursue his own self-interest and then God begins to sit down and to get the attention of Abram to have a conversation with him about, about God's purposes and about what God is up to and what God wants in this situation. And so it says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. 
Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So, so remember that, that this place where Lot has, or where, I'm sorry, this place where Abram has come back to, part of what he's come back to is he's come back to the original altar that he built. And so I think probably one of those things that, that maybe is stirring in the heart of, of Abram is, as we see the, the beginning of Genesis 13 opening up and, and we see, you know, kind of this, this retelling of him returning from Egypt is that he, he returns to the place where ultimately he had met with God in the beginning. He, he returns to the place where he had been called by God in the beginning, and there's an altar set up there um, to remind him and to be, to be a memorial um, to, the, to, this, to this meeting that he had with God. You know, I, I think sometimes when, uh, when, when we're walking through things and God accomplishes things in our lives, um, I think we ought to be like the children of Israel a little, a little bit. And, and we ought to like create some sort of an altar, not necessarily to, you know, to, to be an idol, to be worshiped. That's not the point. What, what, what the Israelites did and, and what started with Abram and what continued throughout um, all of the, the old Testament history of the, the nation of Israel is that when God did significant things with the people, when God did significant things on behalf of the people, when God taught the people some, some valuable lesson and drew them to himself, there was a common practice that when they had met with the Lord, they would stop and build an altar. And really building an altar, you know, we, we might think that they're building some sort of a cathedral or a big building or whatever, but really what the altar was is they were just piling up a bunch of rocks. They were just being very intentional about building this structure that, that would remind them that every time they walked by this pile of rocks, every time they encountered it, it would be a reminder to them that they had met with God in this place, and it would be a reminder to them of what it was that God had done. And so I think that even the physical proximity of Abram getting out of Egypt and getting back into the land of, of Canaan was, was really a, a moment where he saw this altar and he, he remembered. And so God's restating the covenant to him, but I think Abram already was, was restating the covenant probably in his own heart and was remembering those things that God had promised to him because he came by that altar. So when God restated the covenant to him and he reassured him that he was going to accomplish everything that he had promised to him, that he was going to give him the land, that he was going to give him offspring, that his offspring would number more than the stars in the sky. God says now here, more than all the grains of, of sand um, or, or, or or like molecules of dirt in the whole world, like that's, that's how numerous your offspring will be. And he says, look, man, look to the east and the west and the north and the south, as far as you can see in every direction, this land is yours because I'm giving it to you. And so what, is, what does Abram do? It says that, that he stopped at Hebron and that he built an altar to the Lord. So again, he's trying to set up accountability here not to forget. You know, one of the things that I remind our adopted families when we're doing Rooted in Love and we're talking about the uh, talking about marriage and talking about marriage being the foundation of um, adoption success, one of the things I, I, I kind of talk to our families about is about finding ways to build altars to remember those things that God's called them to do. Because I think our adoptive families are, they're not really different than us, but um, we all need to be in places at times or, or need to set up places in our lives at times where we're, we're sure to remember those things that God's called us to do. Um, I'll, I'll talk about it through the lens of adoption because that's something that's really familiar to us. We, we spend a lot of time in, in pre-adoptive education talking to our families about how hard things can get. We teach them TBRI principles and, and invest in them all kinds of things that they're going to need to be able to parent kids from hard places and ultimately to be able to disciple kids that are coming from hard places. And we're incredibly intentional about doing that. But one of the things that we know is that, that surely somewhere along the way, adoption is going to get tough for families. 
And so part of the reason we do what we do is, and, and, and part of the reason we walk with families the way that we walk with them is because we want to be in a position to help them to understand and to see the, the God moments that happen through their adoption process. We want them to be able to identify that God called them to adoption. We want to be able to, for them to identify that God worked exceptionally in their circumstances to get them to just the right child at just the right time, and that, that God was attentive to the details of their adoption. Why do we do that? We do it because ultimately we know that there's a day coming somewhere down the road where they're going to question, it's going to get tough, and they're going to question whether they're really being obedient to God or not. They're going to start to question whether, did they hear the word of the Lord right? Did they hear the voice of the Lord right? Did they interpret the scriptures well? Did they step out and do something that they shouldn't do? And our responsibility to them through the process, even in, in things that we're doing with them, like their home study and, and, and working through their matching and all those kind of things, those are opportunities that we have to be able to walk with them to, to help them to look for and to listen for the voice of the Lord, to see where God's at work and to join him there. And, and, and we hold a great stewardship in that. We've been given a great trust in that, that we're not just trying to drive a family toward a child for the sake of helping a child on, on this side of heaven. We're ultimately trying to facilitate a process that's been originated by God, that God's called a family out in, and that, and that we're trying to put something together that's ultimately God's will and God's desire for them. And so if there are families that shouldn't adopt um, if there are families that are that are stepping into into things where where we see that that, that things shouldn't happen, we need to, to 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 lovingly lead them to to understand that we like we're not just pushing for an end to accomplish a goal um, just because that's what we're perceived to be here to do. At the end of the day, we're, we're we hold a holy trust before God that that we're here to be a part of a process that ultimately confirms to them confirms to those families. And, and, and helps them to, to see what it is that God is calling them to do, and then to help them to be able to walk out that calling obediently. And so one of the things I would encourage you to counsel families to do, to counsel birth moms to do, to counsel people that we're working with in foster care to do, is that along the way, when they see God do something, when they see God show up, when God teaches them something important, when God breaks down a barrier for them, when God wins a war or a victory for them, that they would go through the exercise of building an altar. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean going out in their yard and, and piling up rocks, but what it does mean is it means it means giving themselves some sort of tangible reminder so that they can, when, when times get hard, they'll have these things that are in their life that they'll pass by, maybe even metaphorically pass by, uh, that'll remind them of the fact that God did call them to this thing, even if it's hard and even if there's there's doubt being sown into their circumstances. And, and so maybe that's like encouraging families to journal, to write down the things that God has done, encouraging them to, to preserve their story so that they remember the details of how careful God was to work and how God has a way of just putting them in the right place at the right time for the things that he's called them for. Um, and that, and that, that in those times when they're lacking assurance, they can go back to and, and, and see the things that God has done. And that can be a source of assurance. So, so we see then that, that Lot has separated. He goes off to the Jordan Valley. Um, Abram stays in Canaan, and you know everything is, is kind of good and at peace. And they're, they're wealthy, and they have a lot of servants, and they have a lot of animals, and they have a lot of stuff. But Abram's still living in this kind of already but not yet sort of condition where he's received part of the promise of God. He's received to, to be able to live in the land that God's given him, but he hasn't received the fullness of everything yet because the land still has people living in it that are still, um, that are still not his descendants. And, and by the way, he doesn't have any descendants yet. He has a bunch of servants and he has a bunch of, a bunch of livestock and he has a bunch of silver and he has a bunch of gold, but he doesn't have a bunch of children at this point. And so the thing that he wants the most to cement his legacy and the thing that God's promised him the most, the biggest thing, which is that he's going to make a great nation of Abram, the, like that part hadn't even begun yet. 
And so it gets a little more complicated. So in chapter 14, we, it begins and it says, in the days um, of Amraphel, <laughs> the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Eleazar, um, this other guy, the king of Edom, Cherodilamar, um, I, I hate these names, honestly, and they never really taught us how to pronounce them well um, in seminary. Um, title, king of Goam, these kings made war with, with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinuab, king of Adamah, um, Shember, king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, um, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served um, Cheddar Lermar. I really should have probably tried to pronounce these before um, I actually jumped in to, to start to teach this morning. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, um, this, this king and, and the kings who were, were with him came and defeated Rephaim, in, in Asheroth Canarum, in Zeusium, in Ham, in Em, in uh, Shaveth Catharium, and, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the, the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adamah, the king of Zebium, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Siddim, where Chertolamar, sure, the king of Edom, titled the king of Goam, Am Amraphael, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of, of Solomon and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So understand that this place, so, that, so there's this war that's going on where kings have risen up out of the land, and these are, these are kings that are primarily in the land that are, that are kind of between where Abram is and um, and, and where, where Lot is, but the kings that are around Lot have, have all risen up and they're fighting against this king that they've been in peace with. And so there are these battles that ensue back and forth, and, and these kings, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adamah, the king of Zebium, um, and the king of Bela, they went out and they joined this battle um, and, and, and they begin to try to, to try to release themselves from the control of this, this other king. But, um, but they, but they begin to lose. And so they begin to, they begin to flee. Um, and it says that, that these bitumen pits, these are literally, these are like tar pits. <laughs> They're like asphalt pits. They're like bubbling cauldrons of, of, of tar and pitch. And so literally, as the army's fleeing away, this horrific scene is that as the army's going and they're, they're being challenged and many of them are being killed, I'm sure, by the enemy, they're also dying because they're falling into these, into these like bubbling tar pits and, and they're, they're literally being consumed alive in, in the fire in these pits. And so it's a, it's a very hellish scene that we see quite honestly. Um, and I'm sure there was, you know, there was great agony and great gnashing of teeth. And, and, and so they're running. And, and so what happens is, is that, that they're overcome, overcome. And it said, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So these kings that have come to, to fight back the rebellion of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and several of the other um, areas around Sodom and Gomorrah, that as, as these kings went out to fight, they, they're defeated, they're, they're driven out and up into the hill country, but Lot's still living there. He's not part of all of these people. He didn't go out to go to war. He's just there and, and kind of in the wrong place. And so being in the wrong place, when they come in to pillage Sodom, they find Lot and they end up taking Lot and all of his stuff and all of his servants and all of his animals 
and all of his silver and gold and everything that he has. Um, and, and they ultimately, um, they ultimately then um, take him prisoner and, 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 and begin to begin to move him. It says, so then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living in the Oaks of Mamre, the, uh, of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eskel and Aner, these were the allies of Abram. When Abram had heard that his kinsmen had been taken, taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went, as, went in pursuit as far as Dan. And then, and, and, and look, this, this shows that Abram was, was a smart guy and he was tactical in his thinking. It says, and he divided his forces against them by night and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and he brought back all the kinsmen, all, all back his kinsmen lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. And so ultimately, Abram goes to, to take care of the problem with Lot. He goes to where Lot's been captured and he comes in and he divides his men up and he essentially um, surrounds the enemy and, and he, he, he defeats the enemy. And, and so he, um, he, under the blessing of God, and that's kind of the implied thing here, he's under the calling of God. He's where he's supposed to be. Remember, Lot's not where he's supposed to be. But Abram continues to be faithful to Lot even when Lot has, isn't where he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to be doing. That, that Lot, who's become entangled in the world of Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that's even become entangled to the point that he's been enslaved with them by a king who's attacked them, that, that he's so assimilated into the culture that he's not seen different than Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's been carried off just like their people and their things have. And, and so Abram goes in and, and, and being, being an upright man, being a man that, that's justified before God, that's, um, that, that, that's living in relationship with God, but ultimately someone who's living under the blessing of God, he goes in and, and he, his army, his men um, defeat these king's armies, and, and, and basically he gets back everything that was taken from Lot and everything that was taken from the area. And, and so it says, after his return from the defeat of um, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him. So now, now check, check this out. So there are, two, there are two kings that now have come out to, to, to meet the victorious um, Abram. And so Abram, one of them is the king of Sodom, who is, who is thankful to Abram because he's just freed all of his people and his stuff. And he's basically set everything that the war, um, that the war did wrong. He's basically set it back to, um, to, to the way it should be. And, and so remember, and remember this war didn't happen because, because Sodom and Gomorrah were attacked um, by someone and overrun by them, Sodom and Gomorrah were the ones out of their evil intent and out of their greediness that went out and attacked a king that they'd been living in peace with and somebody that was one of their allies. And so they basically lied and, and they basically um, invalidated their covenant. They went out and they, they, they attacked a king that they were at peace with in order to try to get more. And the king beat them up and sent them into the hills and took all their stuff. And so Abram, because, because his, because his nephew Lot is, is tied up in this, Abram goes and he ends up defeating the king and, and making him run and getting all their stuff back. And so then he begins to set things back to the way that they've been. But then there's this other king that shows up on the scene, and his name is Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about him in detail in just a minute because he's really the most important factor or the most important figure in this entire account um, outside of Abram. Um, and, and this is really kind of like the only place where we see Melchizedek, um, where, where we see him appear, at, in, although he's referred to other places in Scripture. And there are a lot of theories about who he is, and, and we're going to kind of get into that and talk about it. And, and so, 
So what happens is Melchizedek comes out and he brings bread and wine and, and he ultimately, he, he basically leads a, a worship service at this point. And, and so he blesses, um, he blesses Abram and he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be, the, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, it, so, so check out what the word's saying here. So Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, and Salem is essentially Israel. It's, it's Jerusalem. So this is, this is a king who's, who's over Jerusalem. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about his story. The only thing that the Bible tells us is, is that he's a worshiper and a priest of, of the one true God. And so he's both a priest and a king. Now, truly, that's exceptional because you don't see that anywhere else in, in the ancient Near Eastern world. You have priests who, 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 who go to God. You have kings who rule the people, but you never have the kind of the marrying of those two offices together. But Melchizedek is like this rare, um, this, this rare person, this rare existence where he is both going to God on behalf of the people, but going to the people on behalf of God. And so he is a, he's a worshiper of God. He's a faithful man of God. He's a priest and he's essentially making intercession on behalf of his people while he also leads his people to follow God. Does that sound like somebody? It sounds a whole lot like Jesus. That, that Jesus was, but because, because humans really literally lack the ability to be able to both be concentrating on, on leading and being in relationship with God or leading and being in relationship with people, that there was this idea that those two worlds were separate. And so priests were set aside to minister to and to bless God. And, and ultimately the rulers and kings were set aside um, to, to face toward the people and to lead the people. But uniquely, here's this one man who both offices exist in, and he's in, in right relationship with God, but he's also in right relationship with the people. And it says, it, you know, even to, to, to illustrate this a little bit more, it says that when he comes out, that he brings bread and wine. Wow, that kind of sounds a little bit like the Lord's Supper. It kind of sounds a little bit like a foreshadowing of, um, of the work of Jesus and what he's going to do in the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood. And it sounds like that this blessing that Melchizedek is, is, is bringing to Abram right now is, is like foreshadowing and pointing toward the future that there's going to be a time when, when God is going to accomplish the work of both priest and king in one person, and it's going to happen happen in the person of Jesus. And so Melchizedek comes, comes out and, and he makes this declaration and, and he says that, that Abram is blessed by God most high. It's really interesting here. And this kind of, you kind of geek out on the Hebrew a little bit here, but, but he says this, this is the first time that this particular word for God most high is used in the scriptures. But from this point forward, Abram picks up the use of this word and begins to use it. And, and so part, it, it's almost as if his encounter with Melchizedek is something that opens his eyes to understand that, that, that God is the God most high, that he is the sovereign of the universe, that he is the creator of the, he of heaven and earth. Like this, it's almost as if Abram has this aha moment that he's been talking to God and he's been following God, but he hasn't really fully understood who God is. So what's Abram's response to this encounter that he has with Melchizedek, and, and what's his response to being able to see a little more deeply and a, and a little more starkly about who God really is? Well, his, his, his response is, is worship, and his response is, is, is ultimately, um, is, is ultimately to, 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 to give to God in worship. And it says, so and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram takes a tenth of his of his livestock and his gold and his silver and his people and everything. And he gives them, he gives an offering to Melchizedek. And so what he realizes is that he's in the presence of someone who, who, who is, who has taught him about God and someone that he, someone that, that ultimately has, has fulfilled the priestly function and has gone on his behalf to God. And, and so what he does is he rightly worships God by, by giving 
a, a tenth of all that he has. And, and understand that this isn't a tenth of his income. This isn't a tenth of the spoils of what he of what he just won. This this is a tenth of everything that he has. And so that he looks at all that stuff that he's earned and accumulated and things that he's gotten, he takes one tenth of all of his wealth and he, and he cuts it off and he gives it. Why does he do that? Because it's an acknowledgement that all of that stuff belongs to God anyway. It's because it's an acknowledgement that, that Abram has realized that he doesn't own anything, that it ultimately is owned by God, and he's only a steward of it. And it, it also is an acknowledgement that he doesn't put his trust in the gold or the silver or the animals or the people or the influence or the ability to wage war or anything else, that his trust is ultimately in the Lord. And so he's going to give to the Lord as a way of worshiping the Lord because he's saying to God, I trust you more than I trust this stuff. Wow. What an incredible thing. We could stay here and camp out and stay here for a long time, but but just understand that that as we as we give, as we serve, as we as we do those things sacrificially, part of what we're doing in, in giving is an act of worship and an act of acknowledgement that we trust God. That we know that number one, we don't really own things and, and, and things don't really belong to us. That they're given to us to steward over, but ultimately God owns everything. And, and so that, that that we have that trust. We 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 give generously because we don't hold on to those things um, that, that we have, um, being worried that that somehow um, that we won't be provided for if those things are taken away. But Abram gives us a great example here to say that he didn't trust in all that stuff. He knew that he could lose it in a moment, but the thing that he trusted in was his relationship to the Lord. And, and that Melchizedek had come as a priest and come as, a, as, 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 as one who stood between him and God, and, and, he, and, he, and he worshiped God, and he ultimately prophesied, and, and he, ultimately, he, he, he ultimately created, um, he, like confirmed in, in Abram's heart um, those things that were true about the Lord. And so then, so, so, the, so Abram, in this act of worship, gives a tenth of everything that he has to the, to the king of, uh, or, or to, to Melchizedek. And so then what do we see the king of, of Sodom do? So in verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So there's all this gift given going on and all this stuff. And, and so, and so the, the, so the king of Sodom shows himself to be someone who doesn't understand anything about who God is and, and really is only interested in, like, is interested in, in his own self-interest. And so he decides in, in the warm, fuzzy moment to try to broker a deal with, with Abram. Now, remember, Abram has been, is the one who took his men out and, and won the battle. Rightly, in, in the way that things worked in the ancient Near East, Abram had the right at that point to lay claim to all the people, to all the stuff, to everything that belonged to the king of Sodom, because he had liberated those things. And so literally, Abram had the right at this point to turn around to the king of Sodom and say, um, nobody, you serve me. And so hush your mouth, get in line, get your people, you're now part of my house, and you're now part of my wealth. I am now the king over you because he's the one that, that won the battle and he's, he's the one that ultimately could lay claim to the people of Sodom. But what does Abram do? He says, so the, so the king tries to broker this deal where he says, look, just give me the people. You can have all the stuff. Just give me the people back. I just want, I just want the, 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 the people um, so that I can continue to rule over them and I can continue to be a king. The, the king of, of Sodom was worried about himself. He was worried about his own prestige. He was worried about his own power, and he was worried about his own place. What does Abram say? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. Again, he uses the exact word that, that Melchizedek just used. And he says, look, I, I, I am... I'm the possession of God most high. I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I have worshiped God. I have acknowledged that God is that, that the God most high is my God and that I acknowledge his sovereignty over everything. 
And so I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Whoa. So Abram says to him, you can have everything. Don't even leave a shoelace here. Don't even leave a thread off of anybody's garment. Take everything that you think belongs to you. Take your animals, take your gold, take your silver, take your people, take everything and go because I don't ever want it to be said that anyone has provided for me except God most high. Wow. So Abram's saying here, he, like he's doing something that's incredibly countercultural. It, it's like it's it's totally weird. The, the king of Sodom is trying to like broker a deal and pull a fast one here. And, and he's trying to, trying to maintain his place. He's hanging on by a thread and he's trying to claw his way back into significance. And on the other hand, Abram says, you know what? I don't need your stuff. I don't need your people. I don't need your prestige. I don't need your approval. All I need is God. So take your people, take your stuff, take everything that you think belongs to you and go. Because I serve the Lord and I trust the Lord. What an incredible difference we see in the life of Abram here versus what we saw in Egypt. What we saw in Abram who was, who was willing to lie and to say that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, because, because he was scared, because he knew he was in the wrong place. Abram, who, who, was, who, who was weak and, and, and fell into a plot that ended up in, in the creation of a nation because he had an illicit relationship with, with, his, with his wife's servant. Abram, who, who, who fled away from the place that God had given him and went to a place where he tried to make his own security, that Abram now is standing in front of another king with the full right to take everything that belongs to that king. And he's saying, I don't want any of it because I only trust God. And so I don't need your stuff. I don't, I don't need anything that you can do for me because God is my portion. And, and it's profound, I think, that that happens after this encounter with Melchizedek. Because we see over in Hebrews, Melchizedek gets introduced again. And it talks about in, in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a priest according to the line of Melchizedek, that his name, his, 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 his being a, a priest and a king, that joining together of those two offices is referenced again in, in Hebrews. And, and folks, like, we can't, I can't say this for certain, but my belief is that what we're seeing is that this was an appearing of Jesus where Jesus came and Jesus was in the midst of what happened with Abram. And, and the, that I think part of what part of what God did is he pulled back the veil a little bit and he showed Abram a little bit of his glory because Jesus came and, and, he, and he dwelled with him in a moment in, in, in kind of this, this role of Melchizedek. And this king that nobody knew who he is, that nobody's ever talked about before or since, that, that we have no way of knowing how he knew who God was or knew anything about God because but all of a sudden he shows up on the scene and he's got, he's got good theology and he's got good practice and, 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 he, and he believes in, in, in the one true God in a world where nobody else believes in the one true God. They're chasing after all kinds of different idols and there's this one exceptional person that, 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 that comes on the scene. Why? I think it's because it's Jesus. And I think he comes out and, and, he, and he prophesies to Abram and, and he leads him in such a way and that Abram sees a glimpse of the glory of God in Melchizedek. And, and because he catches a glimpse of the glory of God in the person of Christ, he trusts like he's never trusted before. And he understands that God has the ability to rescue him, to provide for him, and to do everything that he's promised to him. 
And y'all, that's the thing that we need to, to continually pursue in our lives, that we're pursuing the Lord, that we're pursuing him by, by building altars in the places where he's done things in the past, where we're pursuing him by, by meeting with him in prayer and in the word, and, and, and that, we're, that we're pursuing and cultivating a relationship with him, that we're chasing him with all of our lives so that, so that we can have an encounter with God continually that will put us in the place of saying that we trust only in Jesus and nothing else. And so what does he do to end the chapter? He says, I take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskel and Mamre take their share. And so in other words, he says, fairly compensate the people that, that, that helped you out. But don't give anything to me. I, the only thing I want is 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 the provisions and the food and the things that that my that my men got um, in order to keep them alive while they were here. And y'all, like, here's the thing: I think that that we can live lives um, dedicated to doing the work of God. That we can live lives holding loosely to to those things of this earth, that we can live lives not trusting in what we have or what we make or, 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 or what title we have or anything else, that we can, we can live lives that are indifferent to those things because ultimately we know that we can trust God. And it's not about what's in our bank account. It's not about it's not about what sort of influence we wield. It's not about who thinks we're great or or, or who thinks we're significant. But all of those things pale in comparison to the fact that we're in relationship with the God of the universe and in a right relationship with Him because of what Jesus has done. And so I just invite you this week to to cultivate an awareness of of, of where Christ is at work around you. To really look for the places where, where where Jesus is working in the lives of of people, and 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 Jesus is working in circumstances. Look for those places where you see the Lord show up. And if God if God shows up and does something to confirm in your heart and to and to convince you more fully of, of the of the person and the power of Jesus, write it down. Remember it. Make it a practice to 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 conserve those things because. Because there will be days that will come when, when all of us will be tested, where all of us will, will face difficulty, and we're going to need to go back to that place where we encounter the Lord in order to have confidence that we can serve the Lord in a place that's tough. But man, what an incredible thing that we see in front of us that Abram, who had run away, who had fallen, who had done unspeakably evil things, who had tried to take care of himself, who, who, had, done, who had not let God be God, that Abram, that God was patient and he was kind and he was slow to anger and, and that ultimately God was faithful to keep his word. And that that same Abram now is the one who's, who's winning wars and, and rejecting the prize because, because he's doing it on God's behalf and because he trusts God that much. I pray that you and I would have that kind of faith, that we would trust God more than we trust ourselves, and that we would seek for the glory of God to be revealed more than we would seek for, our, for ourselves to be secure, to be taken care of, because we trust that our security is in Christ. I'm excited to be home, glad to be with you, um, and I will see you in person tomorrow. But until then, we're going to take prayer requests at this point. Pastor Chris is going to jump in, and he's going to, he's going to jump online now and take prayer requests. But I love you, um, and, and I pray that, um, that the example of Abram um, this week um, will come to bear fruit in, in your life and in your relationship with the Lord. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Mm -hmm.